Um, so do you think, do you think the world would be a better place if um, everyone spoke the same language? Is this the whole Tower of Babel? I guess so. Yeah, I mean, I was I, I was talking to someone about this yesterday, and mm -hmm. I I don't I, I don't think they had heard of that story. Mm -hmm. um, and the story in um, the Tower of Babel story in Genesis is not about people speaking the same language. It's about people being made to speak different languages as a punishment. Right. So the, they were trying to build a really tall tower. I I thought it was. I thought originally there was one language. Yeah, though. everyone spoke right. the same language. Uh, they decided to build a really tall tower, mm -hmm. um, and God didn't like it. It was a front and God, said, yes. "Because you tried to build a really tall tower, um, you all have to speak different languages now." So the implication is that people would be more productive. If um, they all spoke the if same they all language. spoke the same language, but do you think the world would be a better place? I'd, I'd say so. I think we miss out on a whole lot more misunderstanding, uh, things that separate us don't seem as serious. I think when when you don't understand the next person, it's the next thing. Of course, is that you simplify who. Right. That person is right. So, but don't you think that we would lose sort of some of the like interesting like cultural things that we find cool about like people from other cultures? Like that's fair. Yeah. Like you go uh, to a you. Go, it's almost like saying, "Do you think the world would be a better place if everyone ate the same food all the time?" Right. It's a little different, but it's kind of like that because you, you you know part of the experience of like traveling to Spain, right. like as you just did, is well. The answer is yes, as long as it's not pizza, because we establish I'm not good at that. So You're not good at pizza. I'm not, You're not good, good at, at eating pizza. pizza. <laughs> um, not not a not a hit on a food, um, but I'm just not good at it. We, we know this. Um, it's hard to say, right? There, there's sort of the cultural elements around you know cultures diverge which make them interesting to other cultures um without you know without that communication yeah but at the same time i think a lot of culture is also based off of where you grow up and the area and its resources right so uh the u.s we can arguably say is multicultural, not just in the sense of immigrants, but even though it's speaking the same language across the country, we know that uh, the Northeast is different than the Northwest. We, we speak about these different regions differently. Um, so you think that even if everyone spoke the same language, there would be some cultural differences that we would mm -hmm. have some sort of benefit from that were unrelated to language. And so we wouldn't really miss the fact that... I, I think it would be less diverse, but we would still be diverse in many ways. Um, and we'd still make fun of each other for the way that we talk, right? I mean, heck. But what, if, even if everyone had the same accent? Oh, that's a little different, though. That's different than speaking the same language. I, I, th I don't think it is. Because, like, you can understand... So, so you're, you're saying that, like, what, 
Bostoners speak of is is English. Or... It is English, but mm-hmm. I think it. But like the same way that I can understand someone who speaks, um, like the English that they speak in Scotland, mm-hmm. right? But we're not really speaking the same language. We're kind of speaking different dialects. And there's different slang we use and different right. speech patterns we use. And so it's just it's just like, I think, in my mind, a lesser form of speaking a different language. Right. Kind of like how you can probably understand someone who speaks Mandarin, even though you speak Cantonese, right? Or am I getting it backwards? Um, no, you're getting it right, but it's a little bit different there. The divide's a little bit greater, I think. Um, but eh, it's fair. Okay, so let me ask you another question. Mm-hmm. You think the world would be a better place if everyone used the same phone? Ooh. Ooh. No. No? Why not? Uh, development of a phone is a little less organic, right? I mean, yes, it'd be good that everybody's on the same standard and have access to the same apps, but uh, so it'd be good for people who are developing apps, but. I largely believe that what's pushing us forward is uh, the competition that's being driven. So the existence of competing phone brands is is the one of the reasons why they we innovate, why the, the phone brands I, innovate, and I, so the I, fact I that we have that. better capabilities is, right. is because of the competition. Right. Okay. So let me ask you another question: Would the world be a better place if everyone used Tableau? Mm. I probably argue yes but that's a very biased yes um you know honestly i think you have to kind of think about the phone idea as well right i I think it's important that everybody is on a phone that everybody has access to a phone but it's much less important about the the model that we're on and in fact i think the competition helps so in the same way a fair argument i think for even tableau is as long as everybody has access to good visualization tools uh, the brand technically uh, should be competing. It should be, be multiple different variations um, just so that we can really hedge our bets, right? Right, but by your logic, we wouldn't be innovating as much. We wouldn't have as good software if everyone used Tableau. Um, no. Because we wouldn't be trying to beat a competing... Right, if everybody had Tableau, that would be the argument. But if everybody had access to different good visualization software in the same way that everybody has access to phones as it should, right? Um, we should be competing. We should be seeing that Tableau is just one of the names in the market and it's what's going to keep us driving forward. Okay, so you just said that everyone shouldn't have Tableau. Oh, good lord. No, I, I think a uh, uh, little healthy competition is good for both Tableau as well as, of course, everyone else. Okay. Uh, I was having that conversation with someone yesterday. Um, and I was interested in what you thought. That's all. Mm.
Was there an argument one way or the other? Um, I don't know. I think I think it kind of comes from the assumption that a lot of people have that all of our cultures will kind of converge over the next 50 years. Because mm-hmm. like a lot of people think that the way people look in 50 or 60 years will just be all kind of the same. Yeah. Um, and I was like, I was thinking it from the perspective of um, if the differences between us are real, mm-hmm. that's actually better, right? So if if we all look different, right. then we can we can theoretically gain something from looking different, um, because that's a real thing that we're informed by. And what we should try to be doing is make it so people are respectful of each other, um, but we should be appreciative of the fact that people look different or speak differently. Um, and if people all look the same, then the, the ways, the ways we would differentiate each other would be more imagined. They'd be like, because you drive a Toyota or because, uh, because I like eating ice cream, right. Or, or because I think that you, um, are, are not as nice or something like it's, it would be all things that we perceive rather than things that are actually true. Use iPhone. I use, Android. No, um, so be more judgment based than real based. But at the same time, I think we'll always find ways of defining differences in others. Uh, it's part of how we establish identity for ourselves, right? Um, mm-hmm. So regardless, we'll, we will keep on pushing on that aspect, but having communication, right? Uh, you know, uh, a, a means to communicate across the board. I think that's important. Um, in the same way. You can argue the same case for uh, Tableau as well, right? You know, it's it's access to that method of communication. Okay. Cool. Um, speaking of identity, <laughs> segue. Um, Lord, I wanted to start this episode, Wilson, mm-hmm. by just talking a little bit about Wilson. Just having a little Wilson talk. Oh, just a little talk about just just do a little Wilson conversation, um, because we do these uh, podcasts. Um, first of all, just the perspective behind this podcast. I don't think we've ever actually like said on our podcast what what this is all about, mm-hmm. and we'll say it. I'm sure we'll have the opportunity at a later date to kind of get more into it. But I think from my perspective. Um, we work at Tableau and they're, uh, and it's a technology and there's a lot of excitement around it. And there's a growing community of people that, that use Tableau. And there are a lot of resources out there for them to learn about the technical specifics, right? Um, there are people that both work for Tableau and who don't work for Tableau who write about and speak about how to do certain things, how to build a visualization, how to integrate with this or that, how to mm-hmm. uh, how to hack it, whatever. Um, but there's not a lot of resources out there for people to kind of learn about why we do what we do or what the philosophy behind it is. Mm-hmm. And so for most of the people that use Tableau or not even Tableau, just people who are interested in, in getting better at data analysis, um, going to the conference and seeing Christian's keynote or having a salesperson come and visit their office or mm-hmm. uh, watching a video online is as much maybe in their entire life that they'll know about why 
we do things the way we do. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's I think, something that we wanted to get a chance to, to inform people about. Right. And so that's, that's where we come from in terms of this podcast. And that's the very short explanation. But I wanted to maybe give a, an opportunity for people to understand what, what our background is. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this ep- maybe we'll do this a couple times over the next few episodes. We'll, we'll provide a little background. But I thought right now we could provide a little background about you. So uh, how, did, how did you start working at Tableau? What, what's, your, what's your story? Sure. Um, so go all the way back to 2009 during the, what is it, the, the housing market collapse. Um, so for me, I kind of came out of school with this idea that I would probably focus my, my attention um, into doing something around, I think, finance and specifically uh, the housing market. Uh, it seemed hot at the time. Uh, in fact, a, a lot of a number of different things, including a couple of different um, sort of internships that I got involved with all kind of led down this path of looking at the housing market a little bit more intently. And as far as I understood, you know, you the, the, the path that seems most clear typically ends up being your career, right? So um, kind of came out of school expecting that. Of course, uh, that was during, of course, the same, um, well, the same year uh, that the housing market just had a massive collapse that's there. I was at the time actually working with uh, Washington Mutual, um, so largest thrift in the country, and of course, uh, it ultimately got known as really the the biggest collapse uh, within the market there as well. And so that was a fairly surprising event for me, and something that kind of uh, I, I grew through. That's there, uh, but I remember actually um, spending a lot of time at home. Of course, uh, there wasn't a lot on the job market for me to take a look at, and ultimately my friend uh, was trying to get me out of the house and dragged me out to uh, doing trivia over at Schultz's on the U District there. So I uh, did that for a couple of weeks, uh, ended up meeting actually somebody who worked at Tableau. And uh, we were playing on a team together and he asked me what I actually did for a living. I told him, of course, uh, not much, but got out of school expecting to work with numbers. And he uh, insisted that I take a look at Tableau. And that's really where I started approaching things in uh, really with an Excel background coming into Tableau, really only knowing how numbers were typically kind of used in the job market. Um, so then would you say that yeah. your, um, your your expectations coming into the job were around kind of that Excel methodology? Was it around kind of what, what did you think the job was going to be like? Sure. So yeah, I think I, I didn't really have too many expectations coming in. The, the whole process was a little bit different. Uh, the f- colleagues that I ended up working with uh, were quite different as well. Uh, one was a physics major, um, and uh, well, the other was actually uh, had a very different background than what I did. And so, in my mind, yeah, it was a lot of, of course, just kind of redoing what we typically did in Excel. Uh, and it was notably different, I think, even within the interview process, but I didn't quite understand what it was. Um, people kept on emphasizing speed and kept on emphasizing what you can do. Uh, and for me, there was always a focus back onto the accuracy of what we're doing. And so there was a unwillingness, I think, to kind of let go and, and really assume 
the architecture was doing what it was supposed to do. I had to check the numbers. Had this to do is twice. Um, this is at your last job. That's something that you were thinking a lot about, or at Tableau okay. as well. Um, well, even at Tableau, or excuse me, uh, well, even after I started Tableau, um, mm-hmm. it, it ended up being sort of the same experience there. But it was definitely something a lot more critical in the last couple of roles that I did. Uh, when you run numbers out there, you had to revalidate whether or not they were correct, right? Whether things tied out, whether or not the model you were using, did you capture the right set of data that you're putting things in? Um, did people reorganize how data was actually organized and you have to shuffle it to, to get it to getting the correct set of numbers? And so there was always, always assumption that that was a, a very necessary role, um, even as I built the visualizations there. Okay. Um, and then what, you know, how did that change as you learned? You know, you started in 2009 mm-hmm. and um, I started about a year, a little more than a year after you. In th- that first year, um, once I joined, you were you had a pretty good understanding of how to use Tableau, of the background and all this stuff. Okay. So what, what were those first 12 months like and what were the things that you learned uh, outside of just the training stuff. I mean, obviously everyone, when they start at Tableau or any job, they learn a lot about the technical specifics out of the job, but how did your perceptions change? I think the perception really kind of altered in the sense where um, it, it's what we typically see, right? The ability to explore through data and to kind of sift through what's really going on probably spelled a lot more um, than really making sure that one number came out to be exactly correct that's there. Um, in the same way, when you started to kind of observe how other people demo the product, how people were actually using it, uh, you start to kind of realize what the, the biggest focus really is, which is really what you can do as opposed to, of course, what um, specific number you can hand off to somebody else that's there. Not to say, of course, that that area ended up being less important, but you ended up, of course, building a trust um, with uh, what the software can do and, of course, what it was doing in terms of pulling information from the background. So after 10, 15 times of being skeptical and thinking too much about the process, well, you know, at some point you have to kind of figure out, hey, no, this is actually doing what's intended to do. And the biggest question then is how do we grow from that point and on? Okay. So what were some of the things that that you did during that first year that made you think about that? So I, I think one of the big things that um, you and I both have that experience of is when we first started, it was a lot about practicing. It's a lot about basically uh, just getting comfortable with what we were doing, realizing it for yourself, and then making sure you have that internal dialogue of what's really going on, right? Um, because it's one thing, of course, hearing what other people have said about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you're asked a question about what's going on and why isn't it producing the one thing that they want, you need to understand what's going on and to be able to actually share that conversation with somebody else that's there. So it ended up being uh, about building a lot of visualizations regardless of what they were really going after. Um, I think for both of us at the time we had sort of these, uh, was it quarterly or monthly? Um, yeah, quarterly, um, we, we MBOs is the common term for them. Right. Um, business objectives, something like that. I thought they were. Um, I can't remember what it stands for, but it's goals that you're supposed to do right. per quarter. And the and one of the goals that you were given, um, right. like me, was to build a bunch of visualizations. Right. Yeah. That was monthly, which is the M in the MBO. I don't. I think it's management by objectives. I ah, think that is the good Lord. acronym. Yeah. 
Anyways. Um, yeah. So Mark Reeder, our boss, both when we start, both of us started, we were hired by this guy and, or you were hired by Jeff, but, mm-hmm. um, but our boss for a majority of kind of our first months at Tableau said, build a bunch of dashboards, go, go build visualizations and give them back to me. And then he would critique them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what were some of the things you learned from that? Um, you learn how uncreative you are. Um, initially, I think one of the biggest things that we find is uh, it's typical, right? You end up building a bar chart for most things, mm-hmm. maybe a line chart if you found uh, some levels of time. Uh, but it was fairly standard, and it really didn't answer a, a specific question that's there. But you were still in very much exploratory phase that's there, and that's still one of the beauties around it. Um, but I think as my time kind of progressed along, and I think. If I remember correctly, uh, when you joined, I was leaving the Tableau um, digital project at the time. Mm-hmm. And that was forcing me a whole lot to focus in on telling a sp- very specific narrative that's there. So it was a quick evolution from practicing just the skills that's a building business to ultimately honing that down and building something that told a little bit more of a narrative. Yeah, I, I think it's actually a little bit different from what you said. So you said you learned how uncreative you were. Yep. And I think for me, it was kind of, it was a relearning of what art really is, right? Because I think we have this perception that if you're a great painter or a great musician, you kind of have these, you can imagine these great works out of the blue, right? right? You can sort of, you, if you're Van Gogh, you can kind of imagine Starry Night and you can just paint it, right? Yeah. When really it's about learning all these little techniques mm-hmm. and learning to put them together in a way that is creative. I think and that's, fair. that's that's the thing that I've learned over and over again in my life from being a musician and, and doing other kind of artistic things, but also at Tableau, where um, yeah, there's it's not about making up a, a data visualization that perfectly fits your story. It's about understanding all these different components that you can pull on and combining them in a way that tells your story the best, that kind of communicates your vision the best. Right, and I think for for me it was really just realizing how rudimentary at least some of my skill sets really were to begin with, even though I had experiences doing reporting uh, and actually very specific reporting for, um, you know, either for the bank itself or with uh, some of the other things that I did beforehand. So everything I knew was a little out the door and relearning Mm -hmm. some of those things you then practice on um, that idea of putting it all together, right? And, And thinking it's not something that, People just pull down from the uh, from the nethers. Yeah, yeah. It was similar to when I first when I took um, I took some art classes. I thought I was going to go to architecture school when I was mm-hmm. in college, and one of the first things they showed us was drawings by Picasso. Mm-hmm. And Picasso is famous for. I mean, most people know this, but Picasso is famous for abstract art. Right. But before he did abstract art, he was actually an excellent sketcher and drawer and could create very picturesque and accurate representations of real life. And, uh, and so the, the technique was more important than him be learning how to, how to draw an abstract picture, right? Mm-hmm. In the same way, you know, we really admire some of the work that Andy Cotgreave has done, you know, an internal Tableau person. Um, it, when he talks about his visualizations, he doesn't talk about some grand majestic vision he has. He talks about, well, I tested out this view and I tested out this view and I tested out this third one. And I tried 30 different things and I found that this combination was the one that meant the most to me. Right. Right. And so there's nothing unbelievably um, 
groundbreaking about that. It's just that he put in the time and he has spent a lot of time in his career learning all those techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think transitions kind of to what you and I wanted to talk to uh, mm-hmm. kind of for the majority of this episode of the podcast, which is um, the VizWiz competition. Right. right? So um, you and I had that similar experience uh, in starting at Tableau and learning all these techniques and skills. Mm-hmm. And um, as as we matured and as the business grew, um, I think we got really good at training people, especially in our role, that mm-hmm. product consultant role where you'd come into the company as a pretty young person, maybe out of college, maybe with a couple years of experience. Um, but we got really good at training people to be experts at the technical software element. Mm-hmm. Um, what we... What we didn't focus as much time on uh, as as the company grew and as we needed to scale more was that sort of artistic element and kind of getting right. getting your hands on all these different techniques so that you could actually use the creative side of mm-hmm. visualization and, and the art the artistry side of it um, when you needed to. I think we just we just didn't do as good a job at training people on that um, because it wasn't something that came up in a day to day. Right. You know, you're on the phone with a client; they're asking questions, type scenario. Right. It was. It's really something that is more about how do you communicate information. It's like learning how to write. Um, right. And so, uh, this is something that you know. Over time, you know, we noticed that this was lagging a little bit. That that kind of skill set, and we also noticed that the Tableau community was growing in a way where some of those skills actually were appreciated. So outside the company, we were doing things like the Iron Viz competition. Uh, we had really interesting uh, blogs out there. We had really interesting presentations that people could see about the science behind visualization, mm-hmm. but it wasn't getting communicated at a really high level to our, our people, right. our, our internal people as well. And so we started to envision this um, this competition internally that we could use to really celebrate these skills. Right. Um, what do you, do you remember anything about what those initial conversations were like about kind of what we envisioned when we started talking about it? So I, I think you and I both kind of have that, had that same frustration, right? Uh, which was, we knew what was useful at, at that point. We kind of had an idea in terms of what people were, um, picking and learning and figuring out for themselves. And a, big piece behind it was you know you got kind of good enough and you kind of started to deviate from that skill set you didn't pursue basically just getting better with the desktop tool to carry that conversation about what it means to have excellence uh mm-hmm. within it and to be like you said um the whole excellence conversation really didn't come up as often as what we saw with some of the other challenges that were there so uh we realized i think for us uh way you and I both learned is that that pursuit will ultimately teach you all the other stuff that's there right Mm -hmm. Um, and that it was probably a good guiding stone for us uh, in terms of where we need to go to next regardless of where we came from Um, and so I I remember I think this was in uh, San Diego right Um, you and I both were a part of the Iron Viz competition um, Mm -hmm. at that conference we both saw it. It was actually a pretty awesome competition. It was fun to be a part of. And for us, looking at that, and I think we were just having drinks uh, after after the conference there, we were just saying, hey, well, this seemed to work. 
Why, yeah, the why, thing why that I remember noticing in that contest, and if you if you're not familiar, the Iron Viz is a sort of marketing event that we run where we have lots of people from the community uh, enter mm-hmm. a competition on who is the best at building a, a data visualization that communicates kind of a certain data set uh, in a short period of time. And we were both kind of helpers uh, mm-hmm. to people that were competitors. And the thing that I noticed was we had very different approaches, right? Because we were working with this person that made a really great visualization. Both of us um, were, I think you were working with Anya, right? Uh, no, no, I was working with... Oh, Anya won, so we both lost. Okay, so we were both working with people from the community. I was working with Ben Jones, who now works with Tableau. Um, and um, I remember I thought the best way to have the competition was to really sell the shit out of my Viz. I was like, ours is the best. Look at all the su- cool stuff we did. Theirs isn't as good. Um, and you were you were kind of focusing more on like the story and the elements and, and the problem and, and kind of I, I think it was more about solving a specific question, right? right? Um, and so I think that led us to the conversation of like, okay, what would it be like if internal to Tableau we have we, you know we have people in all our different departments that are really good at Tableau. Mm-hmm. What would it be like if we had a sales guy compete against a technical guy and a marketing guy and saw who could do the best data visualization? Right, like one guy might be more technical than another, but another guy might have a really good story around it. Another guy might right. have a really persuasive argument, right? And I think that was sort of our vision from the start because we thought there's all these different perspectives on data, and it's not about who you know. If you have a, if you have the right tool, you know, it's not about who can push the buttons the best. It's about who can actually communicate insights the best. Right. And what we were really looking for was just that creativity that came from the different backgrounds that were there. Um, we saw it, I think, a little bit with Iron um, Iron Viz competition that we were a part of. Um, everybody did have a sort of different background there. Um, but even for us, I think, you know, when you and I kind of, well, at the time, we we're just sitting on different rows mm-hmm. from one another. Um, even with sort of us coming from sort of different backgrounds before Tableau and going through really the same training path that's there, we would still surprise each other with uh, Viz's that we actually built um, that we were kind of proud of. Uh, Unicorn Viz was Mm -hmm. definitely one side of it. Um, As well as, of course, the different approaches or things that you focus on in order to fine-tune that visualization that was there. So there was definitely a curiosity for us to say, say, well, what happens if we kind of branch this off, right? We were known at the time as sort of the product experts, but... I'm sure there were better uses or smarter ways to even approach this mm-hmm. that we haven't even thought of. So what could we do to kind of further, well, uh, part of it was crowdsource some of those concepts. And then the other side was, uh, how do we actually figure out who's good yeah. with the product? And the other, the other concept that we had in there, I think, again, in response to the organizational growth was how do we do something fun, right? Um, I think in one of our episodes, one of the first episodes we published, we talked about what, what it takes for someone to adopt something. And one of the things that we argued was that one of the things, it has to be fun, right? right? I think that's true of a cultural value or a appreciation of a, of a skill as well. Uh, so at Tableau, you know, we had really institutionalized a lot of the training practices and that's good because it made people more efficient and get ramped up faster. But I think it took away some of that 
get that back and forth that you mentioned, which is I'd, you'd walk over to my row and I'd be like, check out this viz I made. And we'd just talk through it and we'd try crazy stuff that was never going to be a solution for a customer. It was just something right. crazy that we could figure out how to do. And maybe it would come up at some point. Maybe maybe it would help us consult with someone at some point or maybe it wouldn't, right. but it made us smarter people about how Tableau works and it made us understand visual principles better. Right. I mean, if, if we could take a look at a visualization that each of us did and learn new things from it, of course, what could happen if we did it for the entire company, right? Mm-hmm. And we saw the best of. Uh, what can we find if we actually started communicating a lot stronger with the product as a whole, with everybody using it and talking about basically the same conversation at the same time that's there um so a lot of it kind of came from some of those ideas that's there i think the two of us were fairly excited that night but didn't really go anywhere for a while um you make it sound like a romance oh the lord um <laughs> hemingway and gell the winston the wilson poe and charles Shaper. i almost called you winston sorry. winston um, um yeah so we had this goal mm-hmm. of um filling in a gap in our training of doing something for everyone, mm-hmm. um, making doing something fun, um, learning from each other. Right. Um, these are things that you know. I don't think we thought the, the business wasn't doing well. We just thought that they could be doing it better. And other parts of the company were growing faster than, than kind of our, our competencies mm-hmm. in those areas. Um, the other thing, the other part of that that I think we mentioned in the last podcast was, you know, how do you actually create a community community that invites everybody? Uh, when there is an expert and a novice next to each other, how do you put something in place that they'll both get something from? Right. Um, and sometimes with our community, that's, that's difficult. And so we, we wanted to put together something that everyone could learn from and enjoy. Right. Um, so that's, that was our goal. Um, and we thought this competition was a great way of doing that. We thought it was was fun and offered a lot of kind of interesting kind of uh, entertainment elements as well as this educational element. Um, let's talk a little bit about how we uh, how we built it. You know, like right. what what are some of the challenges we faced? What what happened as we led up to the point where we were like, we're going to do this? Right. Um, let me think through. I remember we kind of. We, we pitched it a little bit. I think I pitched it to my boss at the time. Right. And um, we kind of started to build an outline. And that was probably... Did we? Did, was that after I moved over to East Coast or... I think it was before. Um, I think we were starting to build... I think build, we, we pitched yeah. it and kind of started organizing it before that. I think it was like it. late 2012. Right. And then you moved in 2013, 2014. So I think I was in transition at the time, which was also made a little shaky. But yeah. I, I remember I was pretty confident by the time I was done with the transition that, you know, hey, this is what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to move forward with it. Um, and it would be well received. And to be honest, I think it was. Um, when we first kind of pitched some of the ideas that were there, there was a little bit of reluctance, I think, just from the sense of, well, is this going to take a lot of time away or how would this fold out or what, what, where was this going? And so there was a lot of, I think, questions that were still uh, up in the air mm-hmm. from both the execution side as well as, of course, ultimately how effective everything would end up looking. Um, 
we had a vision for what we thought the end state looked like. Right. You know, we were like, well, everyone in the company is going to get excited about this, obviously, right? <laughs> and they're gonna, we're they're they're gonna be in a big stadium, and everyone's gonna be cheering for them, and there's gonna be people, all the marketing people are gonna be wearing marketing t-shirts, and all the dev people are gonna be wearing dev t-shirts, and they're gonna have soccer style chants, and right. there's gonna be. Uh, Michael Buffer is going to be there, and, yeah. uh, and we we basically envision the a Super Bowl, and of course replace all the players yeah. with like three or four. But we didn't um, really think through <laughs> what the between nothing and that right were right, and so we kind of we 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 were forced to kind of go through and build an outline. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what, what were some of the challenges that you remember sure. uh, going through that. So building it out, I think a lot of times you have to kind of think about sort of the ideas of what would what would make a fair competition, what would kind of further some of those goals of trying to get everybody talking, get everybody involved, um, as well as of course uh, just making it fun, right? That that's one of the big challenges, and of course one of the big pieces behind here, I think I, if I remember correctly, was that it was still, uh, if I remember correctly, it was either. Q4 or it was either it was early or really late in the year and it was a very busy time for everybody to get involved so there was a new thing that we were pitching during the busiest time mm-hmm. for everybody to get involved with which uh probably didn't help out the whole experience that's there yeah something i learned about i think just the general experience of sort of having a vision for something and trying to get other people to help you with it was the the difficult balance between not taking it too seriously and not sacrificing your vision. Right. Right. So one of the things that you mentioned was fairness, mm-hmm. right? We were very, we spent a lot of time thinking about how to make it fair. And I think that was important. It was important that we stuck to that because a lot of the people we talked to were like, why does it really matter whether you have someone, you know, uh, whether it's fair or whether this person gets equal weight as this other person or whether this group is, is fairly, you know, really right. what we want to do is just kind of get all the, get a good amount of people from different regions and different teams mm-hmm. on the final kind of part of the tournament. And so we can all pay attention to them. And we were like, well, that's not fair. And what we need, if people are actually going to be involved in this competition, mm-hmm. if we're going to do it in a way where people actually want to participate and they feel like their input is being, evaluated and people right. are giving them appropriate feedback, then it has to feel fair. Right. It can't feel like we let this guy get into the finals because we needed someone from that team. Right. right? Um, so there were arguments we had about that early on. Right. And I think it's, it's important that we stuck to it then because it allows us now to actually scale it out and, right. and look at the contest from yeah, we're, we're, the perspective that's appropriate for that. We're much less yeah. concerned, I think, with those questions because we know it works mm-hmm. now. And of course, we can move on with our mm-hmm. model. But just to kind of re- recap a little bit of what sort of we ultimately had with the, the outline, we decided mm-hmm. to focus specifically on uh, the customer solutions team, which was a team that specialized with working with the product, whether it be in a pre-sales capacity, a post-sales capacity, and really, uh, yeah, or tech support capacity that's there. And more, more importantly, I think we did tend to focus a little bit more on pre-sales. Mm-hmm. It was what we did, and of course, uh, what we understood best, right? So start with starting with what we knew as a, as a start point. That's there. yeah. We we uh, reached out to the entire organization that contains us. It contains uh, so we're pre-sales. Mm-hmm. Uh, it contained uh, services 
contain support, contain training. Um, but we have the most connections and the most relationships in pre-sales. Um, so I think that's those are the people we reach out to the most, and those are the people that end up participating the most. Right. Um, and that actually gave us a good base so that we could we could have interest and a competition. I think um, without um, without trying to maybe bite off more than we could chew. Right. Uh, I think that would be you know if if someone else if people listening to this are thinking about doing something like this in their organization if they're not. Tableau employees, but they're listening from from afar. Uh, one of the things they might think about are, you know, making sure you have kind of a, a small dedicated bunch of people that mm-hmm. you know will get interested in it, and kind of using them as the fulcrum uh, for the tournament to make sure that they all have interest, they're all bought in, and then surrounding people from them can kind of uh, can come in to their network and it can kind of grow uh, like that rather than trying to get a huge group of people that are all disconnected involved at, at once. Right. I remember the next question that we had once we got the group together was uh, something very simple. Uh, what's a prize? What's the incentive, right? Mm-hmm. And we kind of thought about this for a little bit of time, but it really became very clear for us at the end that we wanted a prize that was, uh, well, carried forward from yeah. uh, each version of this competition that we ran um over and over uh and it'd be a prize that people can continue to gloat with as opposed to of course something that was uh uh yeah spent it was point. another thing where we were thinking about sort of the legacy of the tournament as opposed to um maybe what would make that first one the most successful right, right? was we're going to invest some of our own kind of creative juices and some of our own money into putting a prize in place mm-hmm. that um, some people might care about, some people might not, um, but it's very unique. It was fun. Uh, it spoke to the um, kind of attitude behind the tournament, but it also was something that would have some legend to it. Right. right? People would, you know, like the Stanley Cup, you know, you, it's, it's iconic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it obviously our little visualization tournament isn't iconic in the way that the Stanley Cup is, but that's, that was what we were thinking about. And so we, we came up with a championship belt and Wilson designed it. Did I design? Um, uh, I don't know. You, you said you did, you went on the internet and then I think I like pasted something into <laughs> a few a months later. We there. had a belt. We had a belt and and that, <laughs> was, that was decision number two that we made. But I, I think when we, kind of got down to it i think the next thing was okay how do we get people to the tournament that's there right mm-hmm. and that was also uh, an interesting question that came up because uh like we mentioned before when we started to kind of solicit the idea there was a lot of input uh and a lot of different sort of directions that everybody wanted to take it um some of it was very biased towards sort of their own individual teams or their mm-hmm. own individual sort of uh, ideas around the uh, tournament that was there but the other idea was okay how do we of course narrow people down to a point where it makes sense in a, on a stage type of setting where people can compete and end up with the right uh, information that's there and what we ultimately decided on I think for that year one was that it was going to be a three round competition and we were trying to actually think about sort of a bracket that would narrow folks down so everybody would get a chance. But as things go progress, mm-hmm. it got more and more exciting because people were actually being funneled uh, based upon how they competed uh, within each of the rounds that were there. 
Yeah, one one of the things I've learned just working at Tableau, I think just a lesson about business is um, the hardest thing to do is get people who don't report to you to do something, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's actually, you know, if you're a manager and people report to you and it's their job to do what you say, that's that's one thing. But if it's someone that doesn't work for you and doesn't talk to you very often, getting them to do what you want them to do is is kind of the hardest challenge. And the most successful business people are good at that mm-hmm. outside of whether they're good at managing a team of people that report to them or something like that. Um, so that was our challenge. It was like, and we just, we didn't really have a good idea on how to do that. What do you, do you remember kind of the things that we did? I think what we've really focused in on was specifically on how we landed the message to the various different groups, right? Mm-hmm. So we focused a little bit on just messaging this, messaging this to management in a way that made sense uh, for getting their teams involved and getting, of course, uh, uh, participation, at least from their end, that's there. And so there was a, a little bit of, of course, getting them on board. But the other side of it too was really focusing on some of the closer connections that we had, right? Friends that we've built up that are in various parts of the organization that might still actually have a good pull, regardless of really whether or not they were in management or not in management. And so yeah. getting those folks involved also kind of helped kind of garner both this idea that, hey, this is something that's encouraged by uh, your leadership. But it's also, of course, something that is probably fun because your peers are also pushing for, for this as well. And that was, a, I mean, that's another reason why having a prize like a championship belt was better than having like a hundred dollars or mm-hmm. like uh, so, something that was clearly motivated by the company. Right. Um at least for that first time, because it felt like a grassroots thing. And it felt like that. I think that makes people excited about it, whether or not they compete is another thing, but it gets people excited about it. I think we hoped that um, we'd be able to motivate management and management would motivate the employees Mm -hmm. to participate. And to some extent that worked, I think it didn't, maybe didn't work as well as we had hoped initially, because I think we've learned at Tableau that, Everyone feels busy most most of the time, and so unless unless it's something that someone feels like they absolutely have to do, they probably won't make it a priority. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if it's something that someone who's a subordinate from a different team is asking you to do. So um, we didn't have a lot of traction just to telling management about. It. They were all supportive and encouraging, but they didn't spend a lot of time trying to get other people to participate. What I do think worked was when we started trying make to make it a competition when we were like, mm-hmm. Hey, uh, East coast manager, did you know the West coast manager has nine people on his team participating? And you only have four. Okay. And they actually did notice that mm-hmm. like, and, and that's another thing about, I think about working in a growing company in a company that is sort of by nature competitive because of the fact that it's growing and because of the, the right. organization and industry that we're in. Um, they noticed that. And that was, that was a trick that we used to sort of get, um, a little bit more support than than we initially got. Right. I, I think everybody was was still, I mean, supportive at the end, but at the same time, of course, everybody was a little bit more cautious about time that they need to invest in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we definitely, I think, one of the big things we really pushed on was we de- demonstrated how um, serious we really were. I mean, yeah. uh, going out and getting the belt, and it's a for anybody who's 
hasn't seen the belt, it's a it's a fairly serious championship belt. Yeah, if you uh, work for Tableau and you work in Seattle, you can go to the uh, product consultant wing in uh, in Fremont. What is that building called? Do you remember? It's, it's not Lakeview. It's on Stoneway. Yeah. Um, Tim Hughes, the current reigning champion, has it like an erector set or something like that. That he, <laughs> he, he stationed the belt hanging above his desk. Um, Tim uh, Tim was a great champion. He spent uh, he, he I think re- redefined what it takes to be a Vizwiz champion in the last uh, the last time we did the tournament because he definitely. Uh, we saw improvement from one round to another in the right. quality of the visualizations that he presented. But right. um, yeah, that, that was really cool that, that sort of that icon it taking on that mm-hmm. sort of presence in the office, I think was right. what we hoped for. But, but we were really serious about the whole thing. I mean, we ran mm-hmm. a, a lot of WebEx meetings, a lot of yep. things. Uh, there was a lot of, of course, challenges with us being geographically located uh, on a separate coast from everybody else. Um, and just for us actually investing a lot of time, even as silly as the idea is where you enter, a, you build a viz and you win a championship belt as mm-hmm. ludicrous as that was for everybody else. We just kept on pitching it up until the point where people really thought we were somewhat, you know, off a rock. Yeah. We, the fact that we were serious about it was a big deal. And it took, I think it took the entire first and maybe the entire second tournament as well to convince people that it was actually a serious thing. Right. And it wasn't something that we were just doing as a joke. It's kind of, I mean, it's kind of similar to the reaction, frankly, that we got when we told people we we're starting this podcast. Like I remember we sent out the first email we sent out to our friends when mm-hmm. we started this podcast was people were like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> really? Are you like, seriously? You, you taking a piss, right? And to be fair, that was mostly my craving. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> and I think people still don't think it's that serious, right. and that's fine. And it's and it kind of isn't in some ways, but um, it's something that to convince people that you're serious about something, you have to actually do it sometimes. Right. And that's kind of what we found. I think the third thing that we really did there was we really tracked the numbers. We we played the numbers really closely. Like we would review mm-hmm. exactly who would sign on and who didn't, which groups were signed on and who did we message further. Yeah. So I remember there was a good week, maybe a week and a half, maybe more actually, uh, during the signups that we were very adamant about how did we actually get to everybody across the board. Um, when certain numbers were, were light, how do we react to it? Uh, and that was definitely something that was a little bit more unique, I think, than, than anything else. We right. uh, we played it close and we, we followed the numbers at the end of the day. Well, that's the danger with putting someone who is an expert in data analytics in charge <laughs> of anything. I mean, I, just as a, as a brief digression, what I've found is that I am more likely to call bullshit on... A manager or another person I work with or uh, a process because I know that I have the tools to go look and see if what they're saying is right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a little bit of part of the um, the message and, and the result that we're hoping comes from this competition is that people know that they ha- they actually have the power to answer questions in their everyday life. And if they 
um, can construct those questions in a way where they can um, pose them analytically, they now just from their jobs um, working at Tableau have the tools to be able to answer them and make their lives or the world or other people's lives better because of that. Um, so it's it's somewhat related to the tournament because I think that's a skill that people practice and it's somewhat just related to what your lives are like when you spend a lot of time using Tableau. But I think that's an important element. Right. Um, Fallout. What? Not the video game. Get your mind out of the video game, Gutter oh, Wilson. Uh, well, let's let's actually take a break now. Um, what I want to do after the break is talk about the fallout from the tournament. Talk about uh, what the result was. You're and you're just saying that to tease me at this point. I'm just trolling you. But yeah, I think I think we after the break, let's talk about what happened as part of the tournament. What happened afterward? What right. what were the changes we see, and what what do we see for the next version? Because we're we're starting the new tournament uh, very soon, and mm -hmm. what are we looking for? In that. Okay, so short break. I'll send you this as well. Okay. I'll go back on Skype. So Wilson went to Spain. I think we mentioned that on a previous episode. And he brought back some vermouth. So we've been making Negronis and various drinks that use vermouth. Uh, so the first round we made Negronis. And a Negroni is, um, well, it's a uh, it's a cocktail that has gin, vermouth, and Campari in it. So it's kind of bitter, very gin forward, uh, a little bit citrusy. You usually serve it with uh, orange twist, mm -hmm. and the vermouth and Campari have a little bit of citrus flavor. Right. But it's just kind of a boozy drink. It's very right. good. Um, we, we realized there were two standards for it. Um, mm -hmm. One that was, I called for twice the gin. And the other, that was uh, the standard? Or Yeah, I'm going to look it up. So I have a friend who I play soccer with, and his name is Aaron Knoll. And he wrote a book about gin. It's called Gin. The, <laughs> the Art and Craft of the Artisan Revival. And it's a really cool book. It's very like it just talks about the fact that uh, it's you know it's it's got this history mostly in England of kind of having sort of an artisan past and the 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 revival that it's seen over the, the last kind of ten years of craft gins being kind of popular in the culture and things like that. And he has some recipes for classic gin cocktails like a martini and uh, and a gimlet and things like that. And he also has a Negroni recipe. So the modern variation is two parts gin, one part sweet vermouth, one part Campari served up with an orange twist. And the he calls it the official IBA Negroni. So I think that's International Bar Association, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Some sort of um, association that kind of has standards for how you make a Negroni. And this is the one I found on CocktailDB.com. So I'm guessing that's like a standard. And that one is one part gin, one part sweet vermouth, one part Campari, but it's served on the rocks. Um, so that one's going to be a little less ginny mm -hmm. and a little, uh, it probably more acceptable for just like any, if some random person ordered right. it. And then there was the unusual Negroni, which I like the name. One part gin, one part Aperol, one part Lille Blanc. So that is um, also served on the on the rocks, but that would be a little less bitter because mm -hmm. Aperol is a little less bitter than Campari. Right. Uh, and now I'm having an Americano, mm -hmm. um, not the coffee, the drink, the cocktail, the drink. 
Um, and it's it's basically an Agurni minus the Jin. It's got uh, Campari and um, vermouth and a little soda. And that's really good. I, I like that a lot. Yeah, it seems like it's good. And then uh, right now I'm having a Rob Roy. And that is basically a Manhattan, uh, but with scotch instead. Mm-hmm. And you're using Glen Moray. Glen Moray. Uh, so um, I was having a conversation with one of my coworkers the other day, Wilson, mm-hmm. and um, this person said they were disappointed because on the website for the podcast, we said that we were going to share cocktail recipes. No. we And we hadn't done so. And I think on that episode, we were probably drinking beer or something. Okay. We didn't talk a whole lot about it. So making up for that a little bit here by saying that's three or four different cocktail recipes that you have now. Uh, so stop complaining. Um, anyway, as we enjoy these, um, we were talking before our little break about kind of the things we did leading up mm-hmm. to that first uh, VizWiz tournament. And I think um, a lot of those organizational things have kind of carried through and we, mm-hmm. we've kind of stuck to them. And we've, I remember last year we added a couple things to make it a little easier to organize, but um, we're sort of building on those things that we learned on how, how to maybe motivate people, how to work with these different groups that are part of the company um, and, and get this event rolling um in the uh, i think the challenges two challenges that i remember um just very logistical challenges you know Mm -hmm. if you're thinking about this from the perspective of what what someone else would do if they were going to do this for the first time two challenges they shouldn't uh underrate is how to find the appropriate data set yep so the the first couple times we ran this, we wanted to one of the ways we wanted to make it fair was give everyone the same data set and give everyone the same amount of time to build a visualization. Um, and that's tough to do when you're asking people to take time out of their work day to do it. So we tried to give them a little extra more time than we thought they needed, but we kind of said, we expect you to spend a couple hours on this, use this data set, you have a, a window of a day or, or a couple days. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually was really hard to find a data set that we thought was appropriate for the competition. Right. I remember the first one, we actually really struggled even with the first data set that was there. So we kind of worked a little bit backwards, said, okay, what we're generally what we want to focus in on. Uh, and we started tackling into the area of where even some biases actually existed, right? So mm-hmm. we didn't want to do something that was very sports uh, related just because that could be biased towards sports. People watch sports a little bit more. Uh, we didn't want to do things that were overtly difficult to to tackle, right? So you can't get into, um, well, uh, quantum physics data, right, as, as a part of this. Um, and so you had to de- deal with something that people can approach, can understand, can physically see. Uh, and I think we settled on a couple of different data sets. One that was regarding on TV. Mm-hmm. And then the other data set that was regarding um it was. I'm thinking the wrong year, but I, I the other. It was TV, and then it was Twitter data. It was Twitter, yeah. um, and was, we specifically was looking at a uh, partner at the time, who everybody had questions on, but nobody actually dealt with their mm-hmm. data information that's there. So it was actually kind of exciting for us 
to approach it for the for the first time that was there. Yeah, a tradition that has started that I, I imagine might continue, although it wasn't something we were consciously thinking about, mm-hmm. was this became an avenue for people to learn a little bit more about a technology outside of Tableau that mm-hmm. they hadn't known about. So um, last year we used a data set in Amazon Redshift right. to allow people to play with that data source in a way that they, maybe they hadn't had exposure to. Um, and we've done that a couple times. Um, the data source thing is really interesting to me, and I, I think we'll continue to evaluate it. We're doing something a little different this year. Um, I think this speaks to our intention of getting input from a wide variety of, of backgrounds and making it a competition for everyone, not just experts, not just beginners, but something everyone can learn from. Because mm-hmm. I think what we saw in the first two times we ran this tournament was there's actually a couple different types of people that join, mm-hmm. right? And there's probably, you could probably categorize it into more than two groups, but just loosely, um, there's people that are actually really good at this, mm-hmm. right? That's one group. People that really know how to use Tableau well, know how to visualize data really well, and are trying to tell the best story possible, the most artistic way possible. Um, And then there's people that don't know it as well. Mm -hmm. And they're just trying to get some practice. And they want some feedback. They want to learn. They want to hear other people uh, interpret their work and, and suggest what they might be able to do better. They want to see what other people would do once they've had the experience of working with a data set. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that second group of people, having all those rules around what type of data they should be working with, how much time they should be spending, actually makes it harder for them mm. uh, to learn because they don't get to just explore all the ideas they might have. Mm-hmm. They have to do it within this very kind of narrow point of view that we've built for them. Right. And so they don't learn how to do their jobs better. And so one of the things we're doing differently this year that we learned from that was, at least for that initial round, I think we'll kind of go back to the other model for later rounds, but for that initial round, we're loosening a lot of the rules around that. We're just saying, you know, if you want to participate in this, just build a visualization that you think is good. Right. And then give it to us and we'll give you feedback. And we'll be able to tell who's really good and who's okay and who's terrible and needs some help. Right. And by terrible, I just mean needs to learn more. Right. Um We'll be able to tell that from this, um, but we won't have to require them to jump through hoops. Right. Yeah. No, I think that one of the big things that we found was everybody was really excited. In fact, this was actually ended up being one of the big things that we really kind of got behind when we started building off even the first iteration of this was the whole review process for everybody. Right. So regardless of what was submitted, they get a response from somebody that was you know, knowledgeable about basically what was uh, what made a good visualization that's there. And so it was a critique, uh, a, a review um, that was important for just understanding where folks were at. Um, and, and that was one of the th- big things that I, I think is going to continue to be important about running these things, regardless of who wins at the very end yeah. that's there. As long as everybody improves, um, we've kind of done our goal that's there, right? And, and that's one of the big ways of... Uh, looking at this competition correctly. Right. Um, yeah. The the other thing that, that I learned mm-hmm. was the just logistical exercise of signing people up is a lot harder than we thought. Um, we 
initially did everything over email. We just said, send us an email if you want to join, right? And then we kind of transferred that to a spreadsheet we can, and we maintained that and kind of kept information about the people so we could kind of organize it. And then that helped us organize right. um, kind of how the bracket was going to play out and things like that. If you remember correctly, during the first year, we also even built a viz off of basically the everybody who signed up. Uh, defining what team they were on, yep. um, giving them you know, a, a picture of who, who they actually were just so that people could recognize each other and even actually building on a bracket directly on that. Mm-hmm. That got uh, interesting there as so, well. So, yeah, I think, we, I think we didn't put enough rigor around how people were going to get signed up. Right. And we put too much rigor into how that was going to feed into a bracket system. Right. Because what we didn't anticipate was what we should have anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, when you ask someone to spend some time doing something, some people are just not going to have the time to do it, mm-hmm. right? And so we found that there was a significant percentage of the people that signed up that didn't do it, right? So the things we learned from that are, I think, you need to put the hand raise, I'm going to join, and the actual first kind of participation as close together as possible right. and make them as easy as possible. And you... Um, uh, you can't uh, really make assumptions around right. participation rates and things like that, especially when it's a new thing. Right. Also, m- make sure you lax the the period for submission. Uh, we did, mm-hmm. I think the first time we ever did it, we did one day, yeah. expecting everybody could actually chime in or at least at some point throughout the day be able to make a submission. Yeah. Not so much the case, especially with a, a very um, – a group that travels a whole lot, right? It's, and the intention behind that was to illustrate how much you can get done in a small period of time with Tableau. Right. And that's always been something that we've messaged to customers about and that we've talked internally about is that you can be very productive very quickly. But when you're asking people to set aside some time, you can't assume that they're going to have an hour worth of free time on a particular day. Right. Um, so that's something we learned from. Um so, the, you know, one of the things that we're trying this year is your entry is kind of your first round, right? So your your hand raise, I'm going to join, is your first round submission. You're just going to sign up and also submit your visit at the same time. So there's no disconnect between that. And we'll see how that works. Right. Um, one of the things we're trying to do this year uh, is make it so more people enter, not just from the team that we come from, the customer solutions organization, mm-hmm. but from all over the company. Right. Going back to that initial kind of goal of having, um, you know, seeing how a marketing person would approach a data challenge versus a salesperson versus a dev person. So that's a big, that's a very important kind of concept to us. Um, let's talk a little bit about what what happened after that initial tournament. What are, what are some of the things we learned once that first tournament was done? Once we had named a winner, what are some of the things we learned from it? And what are some of the things we saw in the organization? So I think after the first time we even did this, uh, there was definitely a, a very strong recognition that we were doing something, we were on the right path to doing something right. Um, the ability for us to play around with uh, a partner's data information about Twitter, which was something that was often talked about, but nobody actually ever touched. Um, the ability for us to actually see how people approach visualizations in different way and to actually showcase that at the very end uh, was something very impressive, I think, for everybody. But more important to that, I think we started to really recognize within our own group, people who were largely unsung, but were incredibly talented. 
yeah. um, and how they approach information there. So that for me, I think um, was probably the biggest thing that we really saw that we were really surprised by who uh, stepped up, who really demonstrated that they had skills beyond sort of what we really saw there. And then of course uh, ended up really leading others um throughout the you know, throughout the next year as being mm-hmm. somebody who actually had that expertise and could share it with other people yeah we discovered people who we didn't know existed who right. were amazing at this right um and that was really cool that was i think the biggest thing for me the biggest takeaway for me um the impact on the entire company culture probably wasn't as big as we hoped mm-hmm. um we didn't have everyone talking about it uh, and that's, that was probably too big of a goal for the first time. And hopefully that can still happen. You know, hopefully it can be a big cultural event, but it didn't, didn't meet our expectations from that perspective, but we saw that there were more excellent people than we thought. Right. Um, I remember talking to you during that, I think it was the second round mm-hmm. when we did that the first time and I was like, I, I can't believe how many good ones there are how many good dashboards we saw. Like I thought there might be one or two really great ones and then a bunch of kind of okay ones. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it made, it was humbling for me because I thought I was like one of the best people in the organization (laughs) at this. And I think I'm definitely not. Right. Um, And it was also really encouraging to know that we have this many great people. Um, And, and we saw that through this, and I, I don't think it's entirely because of this, but through our, platform Mm -hmm. it actually allowed people to get recognized and Mm -hmm. promoted in ways that they wouldn't have otherwise we've seen people uh i think get promotions because partly because of the notoriety they got from the tournament well no i think one of the big things that we always kind of saw up front as well was people were concerned about basically their teams being represented correctly and that everybody has a good uh well you know really had something going for them with uh within this race that was there but one of the big things that we found was that yeah anybody really uh each team really had skill sets that really demonstrated that they mm-hmm. had uh a very strong competing chance throughout the whole thing mm-hmm. and it was really kind of fun to kind of watch through all the different feedback that was there all the submissions that came through um what would really emerge out to be at the very top. And of course, uh, just to see how everybody kind of tackled the next challenge coming through there. So the one thing that was really exciting for us is that um, there was always, I think, an under lurking suspicion that one team was way better than others. Mm-hmm. And it was definitely not the case. Uh, we actually saw a very balanced skill set yeah. across the board. Uh, and it came down to, I think, a fairly fine sort of delineation of who was the the you know first place and who yeah well um when we i remember there's a little bit of political kind of controversy <laughs> like around that second and third round when people were like you know what you should probably make sure there's representation from all the groups right you should mm-hmm. make sure there's people from different teams you make sure there's people from different regions and we, we were kind of like we're not going to do that we we kind of just said we don't think that's fair Mm -hmm. Um, we want the best people to be in the finals. We want this to celebrate the people who are best at this. Mm -hmm. And of course we would like it to be represented from this different groups. We think that there are enough good people in different parts of our company that that'll happen anyway. And they kind of said, these people, these nameless people kind of said, well, 
if you uh, don't represent all the groups, then you're going to have some problems. Just just so you know, we we are the type of people that can cause some problems for people like you, right? <laughs> and we said okay, and then we didn't do anything, and then it turned out that we just of the four finalists, we had someone from Dev, mm-hmm. uh, two product consultants, and a sales consultant. Yeah. Uh, we had APAC Europe and America represented, and we had two men and two women. Which is like about as perfectly distributed as you could possibly get. Right. If you designed it for diversity, you couldn't design it better. Um, which is amazing, and and I think it speaks to partly it was a little bit lucky, but partly it was like we kind of knew that that we had exceptional people all across the company, right. and we were willing to gamble a little bit on them being represented because we knew that they were there. Right. Um, so that was really cool as well. But yeah, seeing I think some of the skill sets really emerge was was incredibly. Cool. I mean, uh, a couple of folks we, we know pretty closely, mm-hmm. and for them, it's just like, okay, I know, I know what they're going to actually probably come up with the storyline that's most akin to their personality that's there. But for folks who will, I, I, you know, really kind of emerged from the shadows at least for for that competition. It was really surprising to see how they approach. In our case, too, it was new features, right? In that mm-hmm. very last round for us, uh, they actually used the beta version of the product, uh, which caused some snafus, I remember. Um, but with that, it, you know, how they approach new, new ideas um, and whether or not those new functions or new features was necessarily the thing that they would actually reach for, right? It's, it's really in, uh, important for us to see as we evolve our toolkit and this uh, skill set that's there, uh, what ends up being the things that people actually grab out for and actually build onto? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I think that's something that we'll see more and more of. I mean, in the second time we did the competition, we saw, I think, in the finals, mm-hmm. the examples we got, the le- the high level of kind of the, the quality of content that was produced in that final was really amazing to me. And it was all very different. Mm-hmm. That was the thing that was really cool. Was everything was really good, and it was also extremely different across the four different finalists, and um, they all were trying to push the envelope in a certain way, right? Like Andy made a viz that was sort of different from what he might have made in another uh, mm-hmm. example. He tried to make sort of an interactive application, yeah. and one of the uh, Jen and Luke made story points, right? And um, uh, and Mac used kind of a, a really um, unique visual style um and tim who ended up winning had this different approach that i don't think anyone would have expected that i think um his kind of personality came through in that in addition Mm -hmm. to his skill so i think it was really um the the thing the aspect of pushing the envelope and taking whatever new version or new technique or new technology that uh Mm -hmm. that ties into it is something that i hope kind of becomes a uh, a brand right. of the tournament. And I always, I think this kind of ties back to what we were talking about even last week, really about sort of not necessarily having specialists, right? The, the whole idea here isn't pushing one thing to the point where, uh, and demonstrating just that the skill set and that feature, but it was around storytelling. And ultimately around this whole competition, if you can demonstrate the, the use of the product, in different ways to better story tell or better tell your story on what uh, you kind of believe is going on with the data. Um, that's what's important, right? It doesn't matter if you can build something very fancy that tells a very 
you know, doesn't really tell a story whatsoever. And that's one of the big things that I kind of found to be really important. It's not just seeing what we saw from, uh, you know, what LOD calcs could do or what table calcs could do or what um, storyboarding could do by itself. But it's really, of course, using these combination of concepts together and really different skill sets for different data sets for the different rounds. Even if you look back for some of these contestants, for how they approach the other rounds that were there leading up to the final. Mm -hmm. Very different approaches that were there. And that's what I, I think kind of uh, tells the bigger story that's there, right? Um, that you can actually develop all these different skill sets and start to apply them in different ways at the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... Um... It's it's uh, it's inspiring to see that. It's inspiring to see kind of how um, the evolution of technology and the evolution of creativity and, and, and representation evolves with it. Um, let's talk a little bit about this year's tournament because hmm. we're recording this on a Sunday and tomorrow we're going to start next year's tournament. Yep. Uh, so when you're listening to this, it probably will have already started um, and we're going to give people a few weeks to enter so don't worry you're probably not too late mm -hmm. um so if you work for tableau you have an opportunity to join and, and participate in this year's VizWiz tournament right and uh what are some of the things wilson that we're doing differently this year well a big highlight for this year for us is that we really want to expand this out and this was actually one of the feedback that we got a whole lot of last year where folks who were involved wanted their peers further involved and there were challenges that were noted um, with that. Uh, for folks who saw this and they know their teams weren't involved, they actually wanted, they came up to us afterwards and said, hey, how do we get our teams involved as yep. well? So we're trying to really make this as company-wide as possible. And so one of the big things we started really doing is focusing on how do we split the groups out initially at least so that they can actually participate in their own sort of way that's there. You know, pre-sales, and customer solution as a whole have had a really keen experience on building or, or being involved with this process. But uh, that's a different experience for how our marketing team actually works and how, of course, our development team has been kind of involved with this in different ways. So we've kind of refocused, we've tuned things down to kind of really separate out what um, that approach really is so that it's going to be group specific for us. Uh, but ultimately, uh, true to the spirit of the, the competition as well as the, the, the belt at the very end. Uh, everybody's going to come together and we're going to compete in one big competition that's there. But uh, before that, we're going to lead into this in a little bit of a different way moving in. Um, I think you mentioned a little bit earlier about basically what we were considering for some of the initial rounds just to kind of get folks started, right? Yeah, so there's, again, as you said, different groups. So um, basically there's going to be the kind of a unique tournament for each of the different organizations at Tableau mm -hmm. for sales, for customer solutions, for marketing and for dev plus GNA other. Mm -hmm. um, and each of those groups, I think we've sort of noticed that um, there's very technical and very skilled and very artistically inclined people in all of the groups, but they have different things they focus on. So the, um, the set of challenges that people are going to be, doing will be kind of unique to those particular groups right. in order to give them the best opportunity to learn and develop their skills. Um, and the other thing we're focusing on, like you just said, is how do we make it easier for people to 
to join? Mm-hmm. How do we um, how do we put this in an environment where uh, the format or the structure doesn't prohibit anyone from being able to participate? Mm-hmm. If you want to participate, you should. Um, and one of the ways we're doing that, at least with the sales and customer solutions side, is when you enter, you can just send us a visualization. Just send us any visualization. Just make one. If you already have one that you think is really good, use that. If you want to make your own from scratch, do that. And just send us a link. Put it on Tableau Public. It can also act as a way of us making that public website more of a library for content for everyone to come see around different subject matters and techniques. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's your entry. Right. And so you don't, you know, there's no week time frame, day time frame, certain data set you have to work with. Uh, it's very easy to get involved. Right. Uh, so that's that's a really important thing for us because at the very least, at, the, at, at its bare minimum, what this should be is a way for you to learn, mm-hmm. for someone to come in who maybe isn't super experienced and hasn't spent a lot of time thinking about this, but has done something that they feel is as much as they can do at this point in their careers, right? Because they have, obviously, everyone has limitations to, to their abilities and, and what they're able right. to do and get real feedback on how they can learn and improve and do better. I think we've also found a couple of data sets to really get folks started. Um, I'm much less concerned, I think, this year, though it's going to sneak up on me, I think, as well, um, with sort of getting the right uh, data sets as we move forward that's there. Mm-hmm. We've gotten a few more folks involved, and I think that helps out with uh, that, that conversation with uh, finding standard stories around sort of data that might actually be, be pertinent for folks. Um, uh, but, you know, one of the big things, of course, is that we don't want to make that sort of a restriction for folks leading into it. Um, we'll probably have those competitions um, for some of the later rounds for folks, especially with the, mm-hmm. the customer solution side. Uh, but the big thing, of course, is before we even get into dealing with a data set that seems a little bit more standard, well, how do we actually tell a good story that's there, right? What's the right feedback for things? And the big encouragement for us right now is anybody who is just looking to, to grow their skill set, it's worthwhile to just get that feedback, even if it's a data set that you've had sitting around. Yep. Uh, and I got some ideas for the later rounds, Wilson. Don't don't worry. I've got some things up my sleeve. <laughs> Thank you, Charles. Um, so we're really excited for this. Um, we think this we're kind of at the point now where we can start kind of getting to what we envisioned with that first conversation in San Diego. We were Mm -hmm. talking about this being a representation of where the business is at and how different people approach data and being something that we can kind of celebrate as a company. Um, If you don't work at Tableau, um, maybe we can close with some recommendations. If you're listening to this and you're not a Tableau employee, or if maybe you're a Tableau salesperson or someone who uh, has customers who are trying to put in place a culture around visual analytics. What suggestions can we give to those customers around how to leverage something like this in their organization? So one of the big things I always, of course, point to with folks who are looking to build some of this competition structure in-house, start small. I mean, we kind of did. Uh, we started with a group of folks that we knew um, and the big focus, of course, is what the, the general ideal actually is, right? So even if uh, not that many folks actually sign up or even if uh, 
you know, the submissions are, you know, not, not as great, I think, um, that's there, right? The, the important part is to make sure we understand the focus of all this, which isn't to weed out a, you know, some, uh, a leader within the pack that's there or to lead, uh, weed out somebody who will uh, lead us on for the next year and a half or, or more. Um, it is really to just improve everybody's skill set. And for that, you know, if we think about it just from a feedback loop perspective, um, start with that, right? Build a structure where you know how to actually review the content with everybody else. And then from that point, um, just offer up those skill sets for, for, uh, for folks. Uh, it could be for any dashboard that they have. People like to investigate data and they like to share their findings. And of course, if uh, you give them a good forum for it, they will pursue it. Yeah, I guess my I think that's great. And I think my my advice to add on to that would be um, celebrate what you have. Um, there were times when over the past couple of years doing this that Wilson and I both felt frustrated about participation or the amount of support we were getting from other people or the way we were able to uh go forth with, with kind of what we thought our vision was. And, um, and there were times where we felt like it wasn't quite right, but I think we realized through a lot of it that what we were doing was we were celebrating what we had available to us, what skills existed in Tableau, what people were interested in this, uh, which people in our company were interested in it. Um, and every time we did that, mm -hmm. uh, we actually came out with something very exciting. Um, we came out with a group of people that wanted to just watch the tournament and get excited about it and cheer people on. Um, and we got people that we didn't expect come up to us and say, you did a great job and this was a big deal for the company and things like that. So um, I think a big part of this, if you're doing it for the first time, is just understanding what's there and celebrating it and then trying to inch it forward each time you do it. Hmm. Anything else? Uh, beyond that, I think one of the big things that I would encourage people to actually take a closer look into is uh, just our own IronViz competition. You know, mm -hmm. For folks who uh, are outside the organization, we do run a competition every year directly through Tableau Public. Um, they will actually offer up the rounds. Uh, and they're typically sort of just open entry depending on sort of uh, the data set that was released that's there. And so there's typically a couple of rounds to determine who would participate at the very end, the Iron Viz competition. And for folks who are just curious about how that folded out, if you actually go, go directly to our blog, uh, there is an article that's uh, called uh, Viz Reign Supreme Iron Viz. Um, I think it's uh, the, the actual title for it, the URL side of it is... Uh, the Viz that reigns supreme at Iron Viz 2015. Go ahead and search for it. It has the video of the competition as well as the final winning submission. And you'll find, of course, it's, uh, uh, you know, hopefully, of course, you'll find that interesting. Hopefully, of course, that'll be inspiring for a lot of you guys. But one of the big things that I always find that's really interesting is the ability to storytell without necessarily adding complexity to it. And that's one of the things that I really see to being different for us, even with this winning submission that's here. There are things that I think a lot of folks are able to build, but it's that attention to detail that always, of course, sets folks apart. Hmm. 
And if you're looking for a uh, uh, an Asian man to wear a cape and uh, ex- exultingly bite into an apple as part of your introductory scene, uh, sequence, I, I I know someone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>